You can be seated. So chaos theory, besides explaining how my brain works, is an area of mathematics that seeks to understand how small changes in a dynamic system can produce huge results. Okay, so the question is, if a butterfly flaps its wings in China, does it produce a tornado in Oklahoma? A small change in one area of the world producing a huge change in the other end of other place of the world. Okay, so now as we think about our lives, think about the reality of this idea of chaos theory or the butterfly effect. A small change. Some of you know the story. It was the spring of 1993. Let me make sure. 1993, yes. And there was something going on inside of me, okay, that had been going on for a while. And, 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 and so I'm like thinking I need to go back to school and pursue some sort of uh, advanced education and, and along a theological line, right? So I meet with a guidance counselor at Bethel Theological Seminary. And, and a gentleman had a very distinguished-looking goatee and, and, and white hair. And he sat behind his desk, and I sat on the other side of his desk. And I felt like I was kind of in trouble, even though I was trying to just spend a lot of money. <laughs> He's like, well, are you a serious student? <laughs> no. <laughs> you got to be nuts. I'm sitting there, right, because God had been working in my life, and I'd talked to some people so far, and they're like saying, you know, it kind of sounds like maybe God wants you to work for him, but I don't know, and, you know, and so it kind of seemed like the next step was more education, and so I'm sitting across from the guy who's the gatekeeper for the institution that could provide a degree that would seemingly fit, and he asked me if I'm a serious student, and I'm like, not a chance, He's like, well, theological education is a very serious thing. And if you're not a serious student, I walked out of his office and I'm like, yes, I don't have to do this. I'm free. But along the lines of keep on asking questions until you get the answer that you want, I went to my sister and I told her about the story and I was kind of bummed out because it seemed like, but here was the guy. Here's the guy. He should know, right? A week later, I had a different meeting with a different individual from the institution and this guy's like, why wouldn't you want to learn more about Jesus? Now, now one small change could have altered Certainly where I'm standing today. A few years after that, okay, I interview with two churches for, for, uh, for an associate youth position, right? And I don't know which one because I'm not all that savvy. And, and I have an instructor who I go to, the same guy who recommended that I ultimately, you know, go to Bethel Seminary. And, and, and I sit down, talk to them. I'm like, hey, I, I don't know. I've, I've got these two options. Which one should I choose? And he's like, you're an absolute idiot if you don't go with Wooddale Church. Now, I still could have been working in the church, but it would have radically changed where I stand today. I'm sure if you were to reflect upon your own life, you can look at, at decision points where, where if you had chose this or that, you would have stood in a radically different position than you stand today. If a butterfly flaps its wings in China, does it produce a tornado in Oklahoma? The text today is on Romans, verse 11, chapter 11, page 947. 
Now, like we've been pretty honest with, Romans is one of those books that challenges us, okay? And these set of chapters really challenge us because they, they describe God in a way that kind of makes us go, wait a second. How exactly does this work out? So, so let's own that, but let's also have confidence in God and confidence that if we think a little bit, we can probably get to ourselves to a good spot. So I ask, verse 11, did they, the they is the Israelites, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." Was failure the goal? Because if this group of people were chosen by God to do this thing and they just wipe out, I mean, from the get-go, were they set up to fail? Because I read this and I kind of go like, it kind of seems like they were set up to fail. Because if God knows, and the words that are used in these verses, God foreknows, I mean, it's not like the text says, and then God exclaimed, I never thought you would fail. (laughs) And so I wrestle with that because how can God know something without causing that something to happen? So therefore, if God knew they were going to fail, aren't they... Well, do they have a choice? Were they set up to fall? And certainly in some extreme schools of theological thought, there's this, there's an idea that flies really close to that. And for some people, it's easy just to leave it at that. And to be sure, if you're one of those people, don't worry about it. We we all have to live our own lives. And that's the fun thing about life. But I don't think they were set up to fail. I think, I think there's a reasonable explanation. Not that our reasonable explanations totally explain who God is. They don't. Okay? Anytime we attempt to understand who God is, it will fall short of who God actually is. That's the difference between a finite mind and an infinite being. That's the difference between us being able to explain something about a God who reveals only a portion of God to us. At the same token, there ought to be some reasonableness as we think about God, as we look at God, as we understand God. And I think this is one of those texts that if we're willing to work just a little bit, we can get to that reasonableness. And so I ask you the question, have you ever lived with a psychologist? I'm not saying that you should if you don't currently. 
If you've ever lived with a psychologist, it is an intriguing thing, so I'm told. Before you do what you're going to do, your spouse knows it. Take, for instance, the other night, hypothetical situation. It's better or worse if you live with a brilliant psychologist. I would say better. But at first, it can be a little bit intimidating. We're sitting watching a show, right? And all of a sudden, she's like, you're going to get up and uh, go and uh, get a couple ice packs for your knees, aren't you? No. Yes. See, if you're paying attention... And, and even, even spouses who have been together for a long period of time, without having to be brilliant psychologists, could be paying enough attention to know how your spouse will act in a given situation. Now, does that knowing mean that the spouse isn't free to choose? No. No. God is an absolutely brilliant psychologist. He knows how we are made. He knows how we act. He knows how we respond better than we know how we act and know and respond. And God understands better than most how human beings are wired. And so, yeah, God's not shocked at human behavior. God's not like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Now, does that invalidate the ability that individuals have to choose? We could get into a lengthy discussion on that. But what I'm trying to argue for is that they weren't set up to fail. But God knowing that they would fail means that God plans. Because God understands us better than we understand ourselves. This also would be consistent with Paul's theme that just because God knew, it does not erase culpability. Our lives, our decisions, the things that we do are on us, not on someone else. But God can know something without failure being the goal. Verses 11 and 12. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. We really have to understand that, that the Israelites didn't do what they were supposed to do. God, understanding human behavior, sees what's going to go down and says, okay, we need a plan. And so the Bible says Jesus was chosen before the creation story even started. It was always the plan of God to bless the nations. You have the promise given to Abraham. But even before that, you have a whole variety of folk long before Israel existed that were the people of God. 
folks starting with Adam and Eve walking in the garden, a gentleman by the name of Methuselah. You have Noah who walked with God. You have the people of God, the, the progeny of Jacob, who are chosen by God to bless the nations with the good news of God, but they don't live up to the challenge, both in terms of behavior and acceptance of Jesus. At least not enough of them. And so the Gentiles are next in line to become part of this lineage, part of the people of God, part of this remnant of God's people, some of whom are Israelites, some of whom are the disciples, some of whom are Gentiles. And Paul and others are charged with bringing the news to the nations, which by extension is what we do today. What was supposed to be the responsibility of ethnic Israel was given to spiritual Israel, true Israel, the church, the people of God. These descriptions, these titles are interchangeable. And one of the desired outcomes, besides salvation for those who believe, is that ethnic Israel would find themselves wondering why they are now on the outside looking in and wanting what the rest of the nations have been allowed to receive when they receive Jesus Christ. That, in essence, is what Paul is saying. And you might say, well, what difference does that make to us today? Great question. Do you do what you're supposed to do? I mean, the people of God in the Old Testament, ethnic Israel, didn't do what they were supposed to do. They weren't the gracious people of God. They weren't the accepting people of God, inviting others who didn't know Yahweh to know Yahweh. So do we do what we're supposed to do? Are we engaged in a pattern of behavior that moves people closer to being included in this grand and glorious group of people called the people of God? Do we in our lives make people want what we have? Verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, the familiar caveats are all in place, right? Not everyone is saved, but all, everyone who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The change in the text switches from the focus being on the reality that ethnic Israel missed inviting others to come to know God to the Gentiles being put in the exact same position. And that is this, the role that any person has who is in a relationship with Jesus Christ is simply this. Through their life, through their words, through their actions, the role is to enhance the reputation of God so that a person who doesn't know God will say, I want what that guy, I want what that gal has. then and all of a sudden the text becomes very personal, very relevant to the 21st century. The text is arguing for behavior, not that one has to live in fear, but in an attitude of thought and reflection. How do my actions reflect upon the reputation of Jesus Christ? 
And all of a sudden, this gets really close and really intense and really personal. Because if you're here today, and if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what you do, what I do on a daily basis can add value to or subtract from the reputation of Jesus Christ. In all sorts of ways. Your Twitter account, your Facebook feed, the things that you post, the things that you like, how you talk, what kind of an employer are you? What kind of an employee are you? Do people say, no, you really want to work for her because she pays well because she's a follower of Christ? Are you the kind of person that someone says, I want that person to work for me because of how they behave day in and day out. There's this pervasive sense of joy that they come into the office with and no matter what the task is, even when they're down, they don't stay down long. And it's not because they're covering up. It's because they honestly are reflecting a relationship they have with Jesus Christ. How we express ourselves verbally, financially, sexually. Do the things I'm doing invite people to think about God? Do the things that I'm doing invite people to pursue God? Do the things that I'm doing invite people to be transformed by God? And if not, why not? The the text is plain. This isn't a mystery. This isn't a charge just given to the professionals. This is to the people who know Jesus Christ. The flip side of the coin is this. I have dear friends who I love with everything that I have who have very little time for faith, very little time for the things of God. And I wonder, come on, why won't you get this? And I know I'm not perfect, not asked to be perfect, Consistent? Sure. And so on the flip side of this coin, if you're a person who has been challenged to pursue God in increasing measure because of someone else in your life, do you say yes or do you say no? And if this person is close enough to you that you can see their behavior, Why wouldn't their behavior be compelling enough for you to take that step of faith and say, I'm willing to trust God? The text concludes. Verses 15 and 16. Did you see the wedding yesterday? Dang. Brits know how to throw a party. I am telling you. The dresses were amazing. Do you read the speech that the, uh, the uh, Episcopal bishop gave? 
yeah, grab it. it it's, it's really cool. It's really more than one commentator noted the fact that an individual who was the uh, the the son of of slaves um, was preaching um, to a pretty white audience, and um, about the fact that that even love can can overcome. Well, you got to grab it on your own time. I don't even know who the bishop is. He might be a total jerk. I don't think he is, but maybe. So caveats in place. Anyway, text and and and, and the, the horse. Two or three. You saw that too, didn't you? Justify. Kind of like that name. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from dead? Life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, this is kind of confusing to me again. But it kind of seems like God is saying, I got this one. The original plan, the original idea has weight. It has sand. And if there's a few branches that have been, well, for whatever reason, taken off of the tree and a few more branches who have been grafted in, i.e. me, you, us, the, the root of the idea is still good. It still has value. And being a part of that original idea is a pretty good place to stand. That original idea is a place that we can stake our eternal reputation and lives upon. So back to the butterfly effect. Have you ever thought of, of how a small interaction that you have with someone in your life could produce gigantic effects down the line in a dynamic system. For good and for bad. And if that seems to be true, Shouldn't we live our lives consistent with that reality? Shouldn't we live our lives consistent with what Romans 11, verses 11, 16 are challenging us to be? Well, please pray. In the quietness of the moment, I I ask you to just ask God. To listen to God. To allow his spirit to give you the questions you should ask. to allow his spirit to give you the courage to accept the thing that you know you need to do.